This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I've got another author interview that I'm excited to share with you today. However, before we get to that, I want to acknowledge that two days after my last episode was published, the war in Gaza began. In moments like this, I'm reminded of the opening of Bob Dylan's song with God on our side that opens with the lyrics, Oh my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I'm not the person to listen to in this moment, but I will draw your attention to the voices of others. In the show notes to this episode, you'll find links to writing by Talia Levin, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, and Camille Hernandez that have spoken to me and also given me better understanding of this moment. I will actually read from an ecumenical letter sent by a group of Christian denominational leaders called Churches for Middle East Peace that was sent to members of Congress on October 12th. I'll link the entire letter in the show notes, and I'll read the second and fifth paragraphs. It reads, We unequivocally condemn Hamas's attacks and call for the immediate release of all hostages in captivity. We also condemn the indiscriminate and violent Israeli response that has already claimed hundreds of civilian lives. The Israeli government's decision to shut off power, water, and fuel will have a disastrous impact on millions of civilians in Gaza, including over a million children, especially those who need immediate medical attention. And the fifth paragraph reads, Year after year, we have seen that increasing violence begets more violence. Our past responses have failed to end the bloodshed. As these horrific events unfold, we are reminded once again that only by addressing core systemic issues, including decades of institutionalized oppression and collective punishment of Palestinians through brutal military occupation and a 16-year Gaza blockade, will Israelis and Palestinians live in peace. And I will remind you, please follow authoritative voices that can speak to this moment. Unfortunately, doing that here is first not appropriate for me and also beyond the scope of what I'm able to do and produce in this show in a meaningful way that lives up to the moment and has the resources and time to be thoughtful. So please follow those other voices that are speaking to this moment. Now let's turn to this interview with Laura Anderson. This is a thematic continuation of my last author interview, which was with Matthias Roberts. We talk openly about trauma, embodiment, community, and seeking help. I hope you enjoy this conversation. 
As always, if you want to support my work, you can do so via subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, which you can su- subscribe to for free or $5 a month or $50 a year over at postevangelicalpost.com. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is a return guest, Dr. Laura Anderson. She is a trauma-informed psychotherapist, founder of the Center for Trauma Resolution, and co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. She is also the author of the book, When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High-Control Religion. Laura, welcome back to the show. Hi, Blake. It is really good to be back. This is one of my favorite podcasts, so (laughs) I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Thanks. Um, Yeah. And actually, we're just going to sort of jump into it. And I, what I actually Mm -hmm. thought would be valuable for our conversation is to start with a series of definitions. Um, Sure. The first one has actually more of a biographical element, which is what is religious trauma? Uh, It's right there in the Mm -hmm. title of your book. So how do you define that? And what drew you to it as an area of interest as a professional therapist? Yeah, I always feel like this is the best place to start. Multiple times in the book, I say religious trauma is trauma. I mean, I say it so many times, people are probably sick of it. But I think that's the important place to start because in order to understand religious trauma, we also need to understand trauma. And so unfortunately, in clinical spaces and even research spaces, there's not like a succinct definition of trauma. I think we're probably working on it. We're probably about 10 years away because in psychology, we move very slow. Well, research in general is pretty slow. But the way that I define trauma is anything that is too much, too fast, too soon that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. Um, Kind of a quippy way that I say it so that people can understand it a little bit better is trauma is not the thing that happens to us, but it's the way that our nervous system or our body responds to the thing that happens to us. So within those meaning or those definitions, it means that trauma is highly subjective. So it is traumatic for you, may or may not be for me and vice versa. It is perceptive, meaning that there does not have to be an actual real threat in front of us. It could be a perceived or remembered threat. And it's also embodied, which means that we cannot think it away. Trauma and the energy of trauma lives in our body. When I talk about trauma energy, I'm not being woo-woo. I'm talking about actual chemical energy, things like adrenaline, cortisol, other hormones and things that kind of run throughout our body. Mm-hmm when we are mobilized in order for survival, um, things like that. So yeah, so when we understand trauma, then we can start to understand religious trauma. And religious trauma is trauma. The word religion in that con- in this context then gives us a little bit more depth and meaning and understanding of where the trauma is resulting from or where it originated, the environment where the overwhelm happened. So in terms of like how trauma lives in our bodies, that's going to be very similar between people regardless of where the trauma originated from. So whether that's developed mentally, trauma from war, trauma from religion, how that kind of operates in our nervous system uh, on a very general level is pretty much the same. But the recovery piece of trauma is where we get a little bit more specific that and those things have to do with the context where the where the trauma is originating from. A great example of this would be somebody who is traumatized from war. In their recovery process, you're probably not going to have to work through many triggers of being in Hobby Lobby and having Christian music playing. <laughs> They'll be like, whatever, right? You know, but they might be highly uh, triggered by things like car backfire, loud noises, being in uh, tight, cramped spaces or with a lot of people. 
Whereas people from religious contexts might look at that and be like, that's not a thing. But walking into Hobby Lobby is quite triggering. And so when we we look at trauma, kind of some of the parts of healing as, as like a multifaceted process, and we have that energy resolution, like resolving how the trauma energy is living in our bodies, which is very, is more general. And then we have the more specific, which is the recovery process that is going to involve the specific pieces of um, that, that connect back to that origin. So that's a little bit about religious trauma. And the and I'm sure there's other questions, which I'm happy to answer. Uh, but the way that I got involved in it on a professional basis very much stems from my own personal story and my own experience of religious abuse and trauma, and then of course, living in a healing body after that. You know, I've I've shared more more of my story on previous episodes, so people can go back and listen to that. I won't repeat everything, but I will. I'll just kind of the high level view is I grew up in a high control religion. Um, my father was a director at a fundamentalist Christian camp, so it was very immersive. I went to Bible college. I worked at a church, um, like full time. I was paid and worked at a church, and then of course did a lot of volunteering out of it. I was the typical like eat, breathe, sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything that was my identity. A couple, well, more than a couple, but a couple instances of overt spiritual abuse are kind of some of the things that got me looking at things in a different way. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I could sense that this wasn't okay. And after a couple years of repeated behavior, I ended up quitting my job at the church. I tried to leave the community that I was a part of, but because of the influence that the leaders had, they kind of blocked me from leaving by contacting uh, potential employers, uh, potential schools that I was applying to go to, and really stopped me from leaving. But um, through that, I was able to get another job within the same community, and that allowed me just enough space to kind of get out of their control a little bit to be able to explore some options, and eventually did end up going back to school, which is where I got my degree in marriage and family therapy. It all landed me here in the South because I wanted a change of, of pace. And I started I started off working in community mental health, but quickly shifted into private practice. And during that time, I was going through my own deconstruction process as well. I really do believe that I started that probably at the beginning of my graduate program, but we didn't have language for that at the time. We weren't calling it deconstruction. And because social media was not something that was available, in fact, Facebook hadn't even been uh, created yet. I mean, I guess we had MySpace. Um, you know, you know, I just, I really did think I was the only person going through this, not in an egotistical way, but just in a very isolated way. I really did think this is only me. There, there must be something wrong with me. I caused these things to happen, and so there was a lot of kind of like private, isolated deconstruction. But for about five years. And then when I moved here to the South and I got into private practice, clients started to land in my office. I still don't know how exactly, but they were sharing experiences with me of spiritual abuse and things that I started to notice as trauma. And so I was, I feel like sometimes I was like literally one day ahead of my clients where I was like, oh gosh, that's the thing I processed yesterday, but I can hear, be here and support you today. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where I started to recognize some of the similarities between like domestic violence and dynamics of power and control within religion. That's where I started to see religious trauma as trauma in terms of the impact um, on our physiology as well as our psychology and other areas. And really in the 20 during the 2015 kind of election cycle going into 2016 is where we started to see an increase on social media, which I'm sure you're very aware of, in terms of public discourse and people starting to take this seriously and going, these aren't isolated incidences. This is not just a Catholic problem. As we try, it's not the one bad apple. It's not, you know, a, you know, yes, we're sinners, but God is sinless. We started to see that many, many people were having these issues with their, you know, religions of origin, as well as the impact that it was having on their body and on their psyche. And so I was able to connect with really wonderful people on a personal level, as well as professional. And that's where I started to do networking, getting resources together, uh, and then started to educate and talk on podcasts and be able to share with people freely, like on social media, hey, here's some things to be thinking about. Um, And then of course, we have these wonderful things called podcasts that people can really receive like free education on. And I think that is incredibly impactful. I know that I, you know, I had done a lot of deconstructing before the 2015 and 2016 election cycle, you know, kind of going into that. But there was something different to know that there's other people going through this. It changed. It it allowed me to experience some different things that I had not previously been able to. And so it's kind of just been going since that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's led to opening my company, which is the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. We specialize in working with folks who have religious trauma coming out of cults, high control religion, fundamentalism, purity culture. And truly, we work with clients from all over the world, which is incredible. Uh, But it also shows the lack of resource uh, because we, you know, we have people from every continent except for Antarctica. So so it's, it's wonderful, but also, yeah, shows where some of the gaps are in our support. Well, thank you for sharing some of that detail about your about your own journey and how you found this as your as your line of work. I I do want to actually continue to dive into some of the other definitions. One thing that you did, one of the things that you mentioned was you mentioned both trauma and abuse. So Mm -hmm. uh, so let's also define what for our conversation, what abuse means. And because Mm -hmm. actually, there were a couple of things within your text that 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 did surprise I, I think surprise me or were a definition that I wasn't aware of primarily mm. being that that abuse doesn't necessarily have to be a pattern and and that mm-hmm. can be uh, and mm-hmm. that certainly can be the case for uh, right. for in, instance of assault and things like that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. however that's that sort of context of it not necessarily having to be repeated or a pattern was something I was I had never heard Mm -hmm. before or read before yeah yeah so if you were to look up abuse in a dictionary or google it and there's many many definitions that might come up the one that resonates the most with me and I use this in the book is that abuse is is something that used for its unintended purpose. And that's a very general and vague definition, but that's, I think, why I like it. Mm -hmm. So if we think about physical abuse, then it's using your body for its unintended purpose to harm another person. If we think of verbal abuse, it's using our voice um, and the words for unintended purposes to harm somebody else, right? Um, And so religion then would be the same way, using religion to gain power and control and manipulate people rather than 
allowing us to be a supportive, connective environment. It can be, but we're we're also seeing it's much more than that. I do di- I do differentiate between abusive behaviors and patterns of abuse, and the reason why is because. I really believe as humans, we are all capable of engaging in abusive behaviors. That could be verbal abuse, where we are screaming and shouting at someone, making accusations, threatening, intimidating people. But perhaps that's a one-time experience, or perhaps it's even something that we engage in a lot, but when we're made aware of it, we go, oh, wow. No, 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 that's not something that I want to be doing. And I actively seek to change it. And or perhaps it is the kind of symptom of some deeper things. So uh, maybe it is trauma. Maybe there's some other mental or physical health issues that are going on. And when we address those, sometimes those other things can dissipate with little or no attention paid to them. Now, of course, that's not a justification for any sort of behavior, but it's understanding that we have the capability to do that. What I would then say are patterns of abuse are people that engage in these behaviors over and over that are potentially made aware of them and really don't do anything about them. Or maybe they justify them by saying, yeah, but this is how God wants us to do things, or this is the right way. Or in cases where narcissism is involved, there's a uh, this belief that I am kind of up here and everybody else is beneath me. And it's okay to do and say whatever I need to do in order to stay in this position. As long as I am valued and everybody else is devalued, we're good. And so we look at patterns of abuse or patterns of abusive behavior as kind of, I, I would look at it as a bit of a different category because these are people that are very uninterested in understanding their behavior and changing it as well as making amends for it. And, and I think that that can be important in a religious abuse context, because I, I, I say this in the book, you know, like I was in a position of authority uh, within the church that I worked at, which meant I harmed people. I did engage in abusive behaviors by manipulating, coercing, just being really mean. I, I never physically abused anybody, but I think the emotional, psychological, and potentially even verbal abuse, that was present. And I wasn't doing it because I wanted to control somebody. I did it because that was what was done to me and because I was taught that this is the right thing. But that does not justify my behavior. And I have to own that as I'm out of that and say like, yeah, there was a reason why I did it, but it does not discount that somebody else was harmed as a result of it. And I I need to make amends for that if at all possible. Um, and I think there's many people like me. We think about pastors and other religious leaders that have deconstructed, uh, people that held you know ministry positions that had the spiritual authority piece to it. And, and to greater or lesser levels, they had influence in people's lives. And so there's kind of this dual process of needing to heal from being a victim as well as the victimizer. So- yeah, maybe that opens up a whole new can of worms, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you yeah, go. I mean, that is the that is the hard part of emerging from these things is rec- reckoning with to the degree that that you were or are complicit in in those systems and perpetuating them and right, uh, right, and and you know we can talk about it vaguely uh, on a podcast, but we probably know in our minds the people that we that we hurt and that those things may mm-hmm. never. Mm-hmm. never be resolved there might not be a tight t- yeah. closure to that and that's the mm-hmm. that's the hard mm-hmm. hard thing yeah it yeah. is um 
Mm-hmm. I'm actually going, I do want to come back and do a few more definitions a little later, but I think we're going mm-hmm. in an interesting direction. Yeah. I think one thing that that's people who leave white evangelicalism are often conditioned to do is actually within evangelicalism, they're sort of conditioned to dismiss what happened to them. Mm. And I think that that is something that can often carry over into our sort of post-evangelical, ex-evangelical, whatever life afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. And like whether that language means is valuable or is valuable for a while or isn't valuable, that's entirely up to them. Um, But but whenever they leave this formative place, this this religion of origin, Mm -hmm. they were sort of taught to dismiss these things. So what... Mm -hmm. What is the value in using words like trauma or abuse to describe our experiences in these high control places? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to start off by saying that the impact of like a high control religion is going to be different on any and everybody. So simply being a part of a high control group or cult or fundamentalism does not mean that you will have trauma. It does not mean that you will unequivocally have mental health disorders or negative impacts like everybody like everybody's body is different in terms of how the impact lands on us and what we take from that and so there are people who were exposed to those teachings and practices who can walk away relatively unscathed. And that does not necessarily mean that they were not as, you know, quote unquote, good or, you know, stid in the faith system. It just means that they probably had some different internal and external resources that helped them navigate through times like that. And then there's other people that were deeply impacted by it. Um, So this isn't a hierarchical thing, but it's recognizing that there are a lot of people coming out of these systems that have a lot of impact, that there's a lot of negative impact and long-lasting impact. And while I do believe that trauma needs to be addressed from a body-based level, I think that almost always it starts on a cognitive kind of understanding of what it is that actually happened to me. And when I can understand what happened to me, then there's room to consider that, oh, that may have actually impacted me or the things that I'm experiencing on a physiological level, they're not just me making too big of a deal of something. That's actually the way that maybe trauma is living in my body. So I think having that cognitive understanding can help us organize what it was that happened to us and then maybe open the door to say, here's the support that I might need in order to continue this healing process. Right. And you actually, early early in the book, you take a moment to sort of redefine healing itself as, as mm-hmm. a process. Yeah. That also yeah. seems like an important thing to call out for people because the idea mm-hmm. of healing, uh, it can be loaded, especially if you come from, yeah. say, a charismatic background where there's oftentimes uh, something transformative mm-hmm. or medium behind a word mm-hmm. like, like healing. Yeah. So why... That that seems to be another element of this, of acknowledging that this is a process and not something that that comes to a close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came from my doctoral research. Um, I was actually doing research on the experience of living what I thought would be in a healed body after sexualized violence, which also included purity culture, because I really had to 
you have to focus your research somewhere. So, and, and I picked it because it was a topic that was close to home and a lot of my clients had experienced it as well. But what I found was that I, through that, through this, this, okay, I'm going to be healed. I had kind of a specific picture in my mind. This is what I'll look like. This is what I'll feel like. This is how my relationships will go. This is how I'll talk, walk, act, you know, whatever. And, and I kind of put this out there as that goal. And as I was going to therapy and doing all these other things, I expected that I would get closer to that picture of what it meant to be healed. But I didn't. In fact, in a lot of ways, I got further away from it. And so because I wasn't meeting that picture, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm doing this wrong. Like, what is wrong with me? I can't get this right. There, there, that, that shame started creeping back in. And so I was talking to my doctoral chair one day, and she just very kindly said, what if your definition of healing is limited? What if how you think of healing actually is too narrow? And and what would it look like to expand that definition? And she said, go hit the libraries, see what you can find. And honestly, I found not a lot. I found a lot of research that really did define healing as this point that you get to, and then you're kind of good. Like you move on with your life. That thing happened in the past. Maybe we learned it grew from it, but that was that. Was that. And there was very little research about this concept of like, what if healing is this ongoing process? And so as I started to explore that more, what Kate, what became really clear was that when we have this goal of healing, uh, this is what it's going to look like. And I'm going to be this healed individual. Um, that means that unless we reach that picture specifically, nothing else matters. Nothing else counts. When we take that end goal off and we say this is a process, it means that every moment of every day could be a moment of healing. It means that the little things, the times that we respond to something differently, make a different choice, lean into connection, set a boundary, whatever, those are all moments of healing that count, right? Like we're, those are, that's how we're living our healing journey. But oftentimes when we have a very set end goal, those things don't really count. It's like, oh, whatever, I I haven't reached this other thing. And so the other piece of that is that I really believe the goal of healing is living. It's to be present. It's to live in this world. And if we have this very specific goal, it's like that's all we're concerned about. We are missing everything else that's happening until we get to that point. And so when we open healing up as this process, it allows us to actually live our lives. And that doesn't mean that there won't be any pain or hardship or suffering or anything like that, but it does allow us then to be present and living in our bodies and living in our lives, um, which I think is the point of life. It's not to just, you know, constantly be in therapy working for this undetermined end goal. And that's where I think healing actually really differentiates dif- differentiates itself from sanctification. Um, because I when I started this, I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds just like sanctification. If if there's no end goal, you know, if I'm not gonna reach this idea, then it means that, you know, I'm just I'm working and working and working and working on this until I die. And I quickly realized that sanctification and and what I'm defining healing as are very different in their motivation. You know, sanctification is working towards an end goal. Sanctification is about bypassing this life and just getting to the next life, whereas healing is allowing ourselves to grow and evolve and be present in this life. And so I thought that was a really cool piece too. And when we allow that 
bigger definition of healing. It really can just open up our life to kind of whatever is in front of us. And we can grow and change however we need to rather than in a very narrow, specific way. Right, right. Sanctification, Mm -hmm. I come from a Wesleyan holiness sort of background. And so that has its own... Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like Wesley believed in like a second sec- sanctification, like Super Saiyan sort of. Oh. Uh, it's sort of like okay. an ounce, at least a Christian, Protestant Christian sort of version of my outside understanding of like how enlightenment and and Buddhism is sort of understood to to an outsider mm-hmm. uh, of, of like attaining something. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, mm-hmm. so sanctification is <laughs> yes. Is one of those yeah. one of those words for me that is is interesting to to revisit. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, after, yeah, absolutely. After some distance. Mm-hmm. Another another piece of vocabulary that you introduce is one um, that you that you term adverse religious experience, and I think this is something that mm-hmm. that you and some of your colleagues uh, focus on on trying to uh, introduce into in, into the lexicon a little more. Mm-hmm. What is behind introducing and using that term, uh, adverse religious experience? Yes, I'm just flipping open to get that the actual definition that we use. So I'll define it and then I'll tell you where it came from. So our working definition of adverse religious experience is any experience of a religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. So this was a term that my colleague and friend Brian Peck and I came up with along with the Reclamation Collective in an early morning meeting one Saturday several years ago. And one of the things that we were noticing with our clients is that there was a very kind of adverse or resistant type effect to using the word abuse, like spiritual abuse or religious abuse. A lot of our clients really felt like that did not accurately reflect the experiences that they had. And um, we're looking for different kind of language to be able to describe what it was that was going on. And we thought, you know what? Okay, there is a lot of like cultural and colloquial context around the word abuse. Of course, when we think of religious abuse, what most people think of right, you know, first thing is clergy sexual abuse. And so, and those are often like conflated with one another, one equals the other. And so we thought, yeah, this could be a really interesting thing. And there, and the other piece of it was recognizing that there were many things happening inside of high control religions, cults, fundamentalism, that would not typically be defined as abuse. You know, they would be defined as theological doctrines and, and, you know, religious practices and things like that, but people were experiencing adverse effects from them. So when we came up with the term adverse religious experiences, this was our way to help people understand that, well, maybe I didn't have an experience of religious abuse, but I still had these adverse experiences that left an impact on me. We modeled it slightly after the adverse childhood experiences study that was done it's one of the most well-researched studies in the in this recognition that the 
adverse childhood experiences study is is kind of the hypothesis is the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the greater the likelihood that it would result in si- some significant uh, mental and physical disorders and even trauma. And we're operating kind of on the same premise of the more adverse religious experiences you have, the greater the likelihood that it would result in something like religious trauma. But Unlike the ad, the ACEs study, so uh, that's what adverse childhood experience is for short, um, they had kind of 10 categories where they said you have a score of 1 to 10. If you've experienced one of these things, you have a score of 1. 6, you've got a score of 6. We wanted to do away with that piece. We didn't want to say, here's all the different adverse religious experiences you could have. Because the truth of the matter is, if you if an experience was adverse to you, That was an adverse religious experience, right? We also know that due to the subjectivity of trauma, one adverse religious experience could lead to trauma, whereas 100 adverse religious experiences may not. And so we really wanted to leave it open there. And, and so we are, there are, there are people that are doing research on it. We have a collaborative research group through the Religious Trauma Institute, which has been really um, wonderful to see where people are going with their research. We do have a preliminary study where I think there's probably about 2,500 to 3,000 people who have filled it out and unequivocally uh, like the, the top thing that people experience as a result of adverse religious experiences is shame. And the number two thing is fear. Um, So that, of course, those are clinical results, but these are just, you know, the results that we've gained from a pretty basic survey. Mm. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot to go in there. I'm, I, before yeah. <laughs> we, before we go, I, I don't know whether to tackle shame and fear directly <laughs> as a jumping off point actually let's let's tie it to to embodiment here because sure. embodiment is is part of part mm-hmm. of trauma and part of the healing process from trauma i i will say i often struggle with uh, the link lang- the language of embodiment for me mm. um, i've talked about this before on the show i think it was within conversation i had with jamie lee finch a while back like mm. i i have a lot of sort of uh, when i was in when I was in middle school in particular, I'm an epileptic. I was mm. over medicated uh, during that very formative yeah. period um, mm-hmm. and really have, have a lot, still have a lot of disassociative sort of things um, and don't really mm-hmm. relate to my body very well. Um, it's got certainly sure. gotten better over the years um, as I've sort of mm-hmm. become more aware of it, et cetera. Um, mm. And I recognize that it's, I recognize its necessity. It is still something that <laughs> sure. I, uh, I, yeah. it is still something that I personally struggle with, and I think, and you know, not as much as the population has has epilepsy as as has religious trauma. Sure, um, sure, but but yeah. both of them sort of affect uh, how we relate to our body. So, yeah, um, let's, very much, yeah. So within the context of of, of shame and fear and how we how those things manifest in our bodies and as a mm-hmm, result of mm-hmm. evangelicalism or another type of high control religion mm-hmm. where where does that sort of work start yeah so kind of kind of two different things here so there's so many high control religions fundamentalism cults things where Part of the way they can gain control is by vilifying the body. And when I mean, when I say the body, I don't just mean 
like our actual physical body, but what the body can also represent and, and what happens in our bodies, desire, sensation, things like that. Our bodies really can be a way of knowing, right? How we know ourselves and the world and how we navigate through the world. It's a, It gives us information. And so if we can vilify this large chunk of our knowing and and kind of be very specific and craft some very specific ways of how to know things and what is right and wrong, that gives somebody a lot of power and a lot of control over another person or multiple people. And so religion does a really good job of this, of saying your body is sinful and evil and bad and wicked, and you should not listen to it. You should oppress it and suppress it and enslave it. And you're like, all the, you know, hate, come to hate your body, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so we learn to do that. And so then we learn that these natural cues, even that my body gives me, whether that is something as quote unquote simple as needing to eat or use the restroom or go to sleep or just take take a break, we vilify even those things all the way up to, you know, things like emotion, which is oftentimes felt in the body, a sexual attraction towards somebody that's felt in the body. And we say, okay, these are all pieces of me that are evil and sinful. And I have to deaden those things in order to be whatever the prototype is that is is being described to me. And that automatically creates a lot of shame as well, right? Because sometimes our bodies do things that we just simply can't understand. No matter how hard we try, uh, our bodies have responses. And I think, you know, using your epilepsy, like you're not cognitively controlling that. You're bo- like, you're not thinking, okay, now would be a great time to have an episode, right? Like, no, your body is determining that far beneath your conscious brain. And so those are things that then can create a sense of shame. There is something wrong with me because I cannot control these things inside of me. My body is just acting in certain ways and and I feel like I have no control about it. So it reinforces then those messages of your body is bad and evil and sinful and shameful. And so when we look at resolving and recovering from religious trauma and, and many different types of trauma, being in our body is an extremely important part of that. But even being in our body can be really, really scary if we've never been in it before, or in some cases, our body is the quote unquote scene of the crime, especially when we're talking about things like sexualized violence or other physical trauma that has happened. Um, And so I really believe that part of that is starting to come back into our body in some what I would consider neutral ways, some things that are, are, like I mentioned, eating, sleeping, using the restroom where it's like, I'm going to just start paying attention to like a cue of I need to use the restroom and then I'm going to do that and I might notice how does it feel different in my body afterwards? Do I feel maybe a little bit of relief? Okay, great. That's maybe as far as I can go right now. And when we get into our body and we can develop a sense of what we call safety within our body, so I have resources in me that can help me calm down, that can help me feel present, that can help me feel grounded, then we can look at resolving the trauma, kind of going through some of those triggers, going through some of maybe those memories and whatnot, and 
and them not kind of overtaking us in a way that kind of shoots us backwards, like into the past, um, but allows that energy, like I talked about before, to kind of complete its cycle in us so that it's it's not that so that we're not living as if that that threat is currently happening. Um, there's probably a lot of technical language in there that may need explaining, um, but that's kind of maybe a light overview of that mm. question. And that's what the book is for, to go into those. Yeah, details. so go get my, <laughs> go get my book. <laughs> yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So let's... Yeah. Uh, let's take the embodiment and actually we don't have to stay on downers let's talk about how l- moving towards a more healed uh, place can mm-hmm. also involve pleasure and and how how that is something that as part of deconstruction or healing or whatever from uh, leaving evangelicalism in particular or any other sort of high control religion one of Certainly, one of the things that that a lot of that a lot of folks struggle with is 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 recognizing and acknowledging things that please us, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be lo- loaded yeah. like a yeah. sexual thing. It can just be, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh shit, I I like this secular music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, um, so, yeah. So let's yeah. let's talk about that and mm-hmm. how how seeking uh, and understanding what pleases us is also part Mm -hmm. of the healing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things when I'm working with clients kind of on this area in particular that we start off with is really what I call uncoupling sex and pleasure. Because in so for so many of us, like those two couple or those two concepts were what we call coupled or overcoupled. Mm-hmm. So they kind of equated to one another. So if you think about pleasure, you're automatically thinking of it as sexual pleasure. And that's not just within religion. That can be a cultural thing as well. But one of the things we do is we look to uncouple that and to say, of course, there can be sexual pleasure, but we can find pleasure in so many other things. And that's actually usually the safer starting point. At the beginning, I said trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. And you'll notice I did not say too much of a bad thing. I just said too much of anything or too fast or too soon. And that can be even things that we might consider good or pleasurable, mm-hmm. right? If, if it's too overwhelming or too exciting where it kind of it's outside of our ability to tolerate that our body can go into those places of overwhelm where we really struggle to kind of come back into our body and feel a sense of safety a a really kind of weird example of this would be the very first time i ever did a podcast years ago was with kind of like a dream podcaster. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this person asked me to come on their podcast. Not only that, I got to talk about purity culture and The Bachelor. Like my two favorite things. Mm -hmm. I was so excited. It was 
And the interview was great. And I got to give so much information. And I got done with the interview. And I I was like riding a high. And all of a sudden, it was like my system went completely haywire. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in trouble. I feel like I'm back in all of these places. And it was because my excitement actually kind of mirrored anxiety and activation and and hypervigilance. Because I wasn't used to being able to feel excited about something in a way that felt safe. And it was like too much for my body. And so when we're talking about whether it is what we might consider more like pleasant emotions, like joy and satisfaction and celebration, happiness, or things like pleasure, we oftentimes need to grow into that, where we need to get comfortable feeling that, which can actually be kind of a fun process. Um, And so when we uncouple it from sex or sexual pleasure, we might look for exactly like what you said, what are some other things that we could start with? And I usually start with senses. So I might, it's like, okay, you know, I might pick out a scent uh, that I that smells really good. Maybe it's fresh baked cookies. Maybe it's a specific candle. Maybe it is the grass after it's just mowed, got mowed, right? And so I might, you know, take that candle or something and I just inhale it. And I really kind of let it almost like marinate and see what happens in my body. Maybe I notice like my my chest expands a little bit or my shoulders go down or maybe there's a smile that spontaneously comes on my face. And I start to kind of get a bearing for like, oh, that's pleasure. We can use our other senses as well. Is there something maybe beautiful that you like to gaze upon? Is there music that you like to hear? Is there, I would say like a non-sexual touch or maybe a some sort of a sensory object um, that you can like put in your hands and feel that you go, oh, wow, I really like the, the feel of this, or I really like when I just kind of lightly pat my arm, that feels really good. And I start to notice what are the other things happening in my body? And how does that feel? Like, okay, can I tolerate that? Or does that maybe make me feel guilty or ashamed? Or does that feel really scary? And it's letting ourselves kind of ride that emotional wave because it always, it, just like a real wave, it kind of, you know, goes up and it crests and then it, it kind of comes down and letting ourselves ride those waves in some fairly neutral or non-consequential ways. And we practice that and we just add little bits to it. And so that I I think it can be fun as much as it can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable, but it's like, wow, I can, I can actually look for what are the things in my day to day life that I really enjoy. I find myself being kind of drawn to, I find myself naturally smiling or laughing. Um, And can I start to give myself a basis for that as pleasure? And then of course, eventually we might start engaging in what we would consider sexual pleasure. Maybe that starts with just you and yourself. Maybe that includes a partner um, either immediately or at some point. Um, And we go, yeah, we can experience sexual pleasure, but we can also experience pleasure in all of these other contexts as well. So yeah, it is kind of fun, but I I know I led a purity culture support group about a year ago and, you know, one of the things that they were really terrified of was this idea of pleasure because it was so coupled with sex and sexuality and that had typically been such a painful point for them. And so when they were able to uncouple it and just do some teeny tiny things, it really shifted the way that they were able to actually engage in the world, um, even in non-typical pleasure ways, but just it, it allowed kind of some extra freedom to to just show up as themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so much of that is also seems to be 
tied to a sense of boundaries in an interesting way. Mm. I mean, much about a, the language of consent mm-hmm. around uh, sexual ethics is very much very yeah. much a part of uh, boundaries and mm-hmm. establishing them mm-hmm. um, and knowing what they are and knowing how to how to have them. One of the things there are a couple of different things that you mentioned are sort of inverted within high control religions like evangelicalism and one of them is boundaries. Mm-hmm. So mm. so what how how are boundaries taught in high control religions and how did how do they <laughs> have to be adapted once you are building both your identity uh, as well as your own sort of ethic and uh, you know just understanding how to relate to people in a new way once you're sort of reconstructing Mm. those things yeah I think in within religion boundaries are often better categorized as rules (laughs) (laughs) here's the things that you have to do in order to be okay or good or how to interact with me in the most holy way Yeah. And I know this may sound cliche because I'm sure people have seen this on social media, but, you know, sometimes a better way to describe boundaries would be like kind of what do I need in order to feel safe to be in relationship with you? And I, I don't really love that as a definition because I think that can, that can get into some sticky territory because that sometimes means we're expecting other people to, to be certain ways that might be against their own boundaries. But all that to say, I think when we're coming out of religion, we are tempted to, like boundaries can be extremely helpful, right? Especially when we've come out of a context that where we really have not been able to actually have boundaries right. and and uh, ways to be able to protect ourselves and say, no, this is not okay with me or to even tune inward to know what is not okay with me. And so that is an important part of the healing process. But oftentimes when we're coming out of those fundamentalist spaces, we transfer kind of our, our very binary thinking into boundaries as well. And so we'll often say, here's the things that you have to do in order to be in relationship with me. So you can't do this, but you can do this. You must show up this way. You cannot show up that way. And if you can check all those boxes, then you're a safe person and I can be in relationship with you. But if you mess up, then you're not a safe person. And then we're back at square one. We're no longer in relationship. And I can understand that because we're, we're, we're grappling. We don't know other ways to relate to one another. But I think as we grow and do our own healing work, we start to realize that boundaries are actually our own responsibilities of truly what do we need to be in place so that we can navigate through the world. And those can be very fluid. They can change from person to person or situation to situation or stage of life to a different stage of life. We might be in certain seasons of life where we might say, hey, there's a lot of things that I need to be in place in order to feel safe navigating through the world. And I have to be the one responsible to do that. So maybe I'm in a really activated space and I need to be um, really cognizant about sharing that with people, or I need to be really cognizant of taking care of myself. That's my responsibility. I don't need somebody else to call me up and say, hey, Laura, are you doing those things? Now, would it be nice? Sure. But that's not anybody else's responsibility unless they've agreed to it. And so I look at boundaries more as like a fence that we might have around our yard. So I have a fence in my backyard. 
I can let my dog out there and she has freedom to be in the entirety of the backyard. And that fence is not there to keep her from having fun. It is to keep her or it is to allow her to have the maximum amount of fun in the safest way. The gate keeps her from running out into the road. It makes it much harder for somebody else to get in and take her. And I can see the yard. So I know, you know, kind of where she is. And that's how I view boundaries for us as humans, or one of the ways that I encourage my clients to think about boundaries is going, what are kind of the fences that we need when I'm in relationship with this person? What are the things that keep me safe? And for some people, we might need really tight fences. There's not a lot of movement in there because maybe this is not a particularly safe person. Whereas with other people, we can kind of expand those boundaries and we go, come on in my yard. Like, this is great. Like the fences, we've got lots of room to play in here. And I think doing that gives us a sense of ownership and it gives freedom, it gives freedom to other people to also have their own boundaries and to say, you know what, actually that my, my fence is kind of bumping up to that and we can navigate through that. But it's not based on rules of what somebody else needs to do in order for me to be okay. It's what do I need so that I can be okay. Mm-hmm. With regard to boundaries and within within community, I think that the thing that, I mean, even almost 10 years since I was in my last like evangelical fundamentalist type community, I still have mm. a number of reservations about about various aspects of being in community because it's a Mm -hmm. very sort of loaded loaded thing for a lot of us um yes and so like knowing how much uh how much to sort of reveal about myself or to become invested Mm -hmm. is sort of a Mm -hmm. moving moving target and i am certainly bringing my own bringing my own experience to bear and uh and you know talking about talking about this and Mm -hmm. one of the things that that you know over over the years you mentioned at the beginning people sort of have been more public about their experiences in these places the places where they were Mm -hmm. and the place and where they're public about that is online so (laughs) do you ascribe something like instagram or a similar platform with the term community like do you see do you view or Mm -hmm. operate or use instagram uh, for example, because I know I just happen to know that that's a platform that you are active on. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mm-hmm. view that as a community? Um, and if it is, is it a different type of community than the ones that we've left? Mm-hmm. So I would say on a very high level, yes. But I think that community can be defined in a lot of different ways. I do think when we're coming out of high control religion, Um, The idea of community is mostly focused around sameness. Like we are the same. We believe the same. We dress the same. We talk the same. We eat the same. We go to the same activities. And that makes us, quote unquote, safe to one another. And difference equals danger. So, and, And that's oftentimes where the harm happens is in those communities. And so when we come out of those, I though all the research would indicate that healing happens in the context of relationships, when we've been harmed in the context of relationships and community, that can feel very off-putting to say like, no, 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 I don't want that. That That's what really hurt me. Why would I want to re-engage in that? And so I would tend to say that 
While definitions are important, we also have to leave room for flexibility and fluidity Mm -hmm. in there. And sometimes community is actually based off of how I feel in that sense. So we go, I feel connected to these people, even that like this is my community because I feel connected to them, even though I see them on a screen or, you know, that I have this weird parasocial relationship. So I want to leave room for people to be able to define community as it is important to them. The online piece is hard because I I would tend to say, like, when I think about my community, it's the people that I engage with on a face-to-face, you know, I'm talking on the phone with them, I'm meeting them for lunch or for coffee or whatever, and those are the people that are the closest to me. But I also really value the people that I've met online, that I've developed relationships with in a variety of ways. And I don't want to discount those as not community, but I I think for some people they would say, no, that absolutely can't be community. Whereas other people would say, that's my only community. So I know I'm not answering your question because no, no, no. I, I don't know that I actually have I one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it, but go ahead. Right, sorry. I don't, I'm not. I'm certainly not trying to, this is, this is an open-ended conversation and I don't. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. It's not, I'm not trying to engineer a gotcha moment or anything like that. Yeah. This is just, um, this yeah. is something I, <laughs> I think about a lot yeah. and that people, people utilize these, these things in mm-hmm. various ways. It could be to garner followers, to provide general education, to advertise right. for private practices, mm-hmm. to cultivate community, yeah. like all of these things mm-hmm. and they can happen at different, at, all of these things yeah. can be done by the same person um, within the same context of happening in their account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are sort of muddied by the fact that the advertising around these things, the reason why the companies that provide these services, uh, you know, call a community is because the, it, it sounds mm-hmm. good. I, 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 of I course. Mean, yeah. And at the same time, they're just as in, in real communities or I'm sorry, not real communities and <laughs> face to face yeah local, yeah yeah uh, in person communities um there are mm-hmm. misunderstandings there are other things like that and uh, but then yes. they have their because these are not in person it introduces a lot of a lot of different types yes. of friction yes i agree i and agree that, i mean that, that's mm-hmm. i i noticed the sort of attention where you recommend but with caution involvement in social media mm-hmm. just largely because the because of dynamics yeah. like that, that can happen and have mm-hmm. happened in in mm-hmm. all sorts of spaces. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, to me, to me, it's a point of continued fascination, and like my own my own experience, yes. experiences, you mm-hmm. know, have made me to, to talk about boundaries. Like I have certain boundaries, mm-hmm. like um, and and certain yes. practices, but I I I learn mm-hmm. them by making mistakes or just by living mm-hmm. or by whatever. Sure. But but nonetheless, like, I, I cannot, like, at the same time, those things meant a lot at mm-hmm. the, those things. And they, they had my relation to it changes over time, just like my relation to most things. Yes. Over time. Yeah. I think that's actually the really important piece of it, because I know I even said this, like, there was something that shifted in me when there was like an online connection to mm-hmm. people of like, oh, wow, all these people have experienced it. There was a level of isolation and shame that almost like instantly decreased Yeah, because I was like, I'm not the only one who's going through this. And it was like, I didn't even have to work on that. It just went away because there's all these other people that are sharing in this experience. 
And I think that's incredibly important, like to have those other people that can say, yep, me too. I went through that. I can understand that and that sort of thing. But I also recognize then that we are bonding because of like a a betrayal. We are bonding by what we might call common enemy intimacy, which can be really helpful to create a connection. But if that's all our connection is based on, that can actually create some toxic dynamics within relationships because then we always have to come back to this issue in order for us to stay connected. Um, But the other piece of that is, and this is where I think, I mean, we've even had maybe some discussions behind the scenes of going like, when we're in these spaces with other people that have been harmed as well, there's a lot of really raw nervous systems that are all in one space being activated and triggered. And because of the nature of online and the disconnection of it, right, we're not sitting in a room with one another, it can create harm, a lot of it. Uh, And it can create additional activation and additional um, triggering and even re-traumatization. And That's why I go, I don't know if there's a right way to do it because I don't know if that can be avoided or if we can just set up some potential guardrails and hope and say like, hey, this is what we can do, but we have to trust you to like know what your limits are and back up when you need to. Like you don't have to participate in this conversation if you don't want to. But that's really hard to do when we are coming out of these contexts where we are hurt and we are looking to be heard and understood and have a space where we can be authentic and real. And what is healing for us may be deeply wounding and, and traumatizing to another person and vice mm-hmm. versa. And it's it's a lot. So it goes back to, yeah, what you're saying is like, this is an ongoing conversation that I don't know we will ever like arrive at like, here's the right way to do it. And here's how, what an actual online community looks like. I I don't know that that will ever happen, but it is a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your thoughts on it. It, um, That is because I mean, that I think that's, that's what there, there's an element of this that, that is public. Um, And I think that to, to me, that is the, that is the differentiator. And there's, there's another Mm -hmm they're getting back to definitions there is in media studies there's a term that i wish was more popular called networked publics and to me Mm. that is what a lot of these discussions especially uh, you know ones that are on public networks like tiktok like twitter like instagram those are networked Mm -hmm. publics and they uh, what you're doing is you're putting something out and you're creating a piece of content that is then discussed Mm -hmm. And that is different than that is different than being in a community where people are tithing, where people are like, mm, uh, you know, mm, th- there's yeah. a different level of investment. So I don't necessarily think it's apples to oranges by any means, but mm-hmm. I do think sometimes a, a new definition can help. And I do think that those community yeah. communities can can and are possible. And mm-hmm. I think that that those things are are valuable. But yeah. at the same time, that's that's why, because of my own experience in fundamentalist places, uh, as mm. well as you know trying to articulate these things in the public sphere, I'm very persnickety about the word community. <laughs> but I do think, yeah, that it, makes but sense. Does, but at the yeah. same time, 
you know, having these public conversations has also mm-hmm. led to a lot of personal wonderful experiences. Mm. Um, so, mm-hmm. and and I think that sort of speaks to the nature of these things of moving out of them and how totalizing the experience was and how much there is to sort of heal from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. the, the in um, what I hope isn't too forced of a way to sort of draw our conversation to a close. I think I'm a little, over, I'm a bit over time. I apologize for you. Um, That's okay. <laughs> Don't um, worry about it. I, I hope this isn't too forced of a way to bring our conversation to a close. But amidst all the things that we've talked about, a lot of it does involve, you know, seeking and, and acquiring uh, mental health services uh, or, or mm-hmm. you know, understanding and getting a diagnosis for any of the number of things that, that we've talked about or that you write about in your book. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, as a mental health professional, what are some rec- recommended starting points for someone who may be, yeah. you know, you know, they're listening to our conversation, they find your book, they listen to a similar conversation, mm-hmm. find a piece of content, you know, something, something mm-hmm. led them here um, and they're listening to us talk, but they still don't know how to either get a diagnosis mm-hmm. or seek further treatment or can't afford mental health services. And that last piece is sure. Yeah. Um, that last Huge. piece is, yeah. is big. Yeah. And yeah. Is mm-hmm. just that's larger than either of us. That's 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 mental yeah. and yes. uh, mental and physical yeah. health care in the in the in the US. Yeah. In the US, yeah. Yes, I wish I I mean that is like several podcasts <laughs> worth of discussion right there yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so really quickly what I will say about the diagnosis piece is that you do not need a diagnosis in order to say heal mm-hmm. from trauma. Some people really benefit from that because it helps them organize their experience and go oh, this makes sense. Okay, this kind of fits within it. Other people would say, no, that I actually don't need or want a diagnosis because that feels like it puts me in a box. You know, there, there's no right or wrong. But I think sometimes knowing about different diagnoses can be really helpful because it might point us in the direction of some resources, whether that is various therapeutic modalities, medicine, support, just even understanding ourselves and how we relate to the to others and the world. So what I will say is in the realm of diagnosis, if you are going, I would like a trauma diagnosis or a religious trauma diagnosis, if you live in the United States, that is actually going to be quite difficult to get. We have the diagnosis of PTSD within our diagnostic system, but there's very specific criteria about it, and it most closely associates with what we might call shock or single incident trauma. Now, certainly that can happen in religious contexts, but they are exactly like what it sounds like single incidences, right? Whereas I tend to categorize religious trauma under the umbrella of CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex trauma. In the United States, there is not a diagnostic code for that. And that that conversation goes with our other one about the <laughs> mental and physical yeah, health yeah. system that we can have, you know, for hours. However, that oftentimes can be very confusing for people because they go, but I have 
I, I meet all the criteria here, but my therapist won't give me this diagnosis. That's not because the therapist doesn't want to, perhaps. It's because there's literally not a diagnostic diagnostic code in our material that insurance will pay for that is CPTSD. So that's where I want to just be careful to say you can still have a diagnosis like that and perhaps it's not reflecting that on insurance records. Maybe you don't want that to reflect on insurance records, but it does not invalidate what that might mm -hmm. be in you. So in terms of resources, of course, I would always, you know, like if therapy or trauma coaching is something that is available to you because of location and finances and desire, I would highly recommend finding somebody who is trauma, for sure, trauma informed, but even more than that, trauma trained. There's a difference there. Somebody who is trained has certifications in that. I will, I'll promote my own company, the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, where that is a requirement for our practitioners is to have training and certification in trauma resolution modalities. We we offer a variety of services, courses, seminars, workshops, you know, sliding scale spots, group uh, group coaching, individual coaching, everything. But there's also many people in communities that we might live in that do trauma work that may not understand religious trauma necessarily, but have a really good grasp on how trauma lives in the body. And to that end, I would say if that is within your scope of being able to, you know, kind of have that, go for it. And, and Psychology Today is a really great place where you can find people that would be in your area, might take insurance, have sliding scales, things like that. In terms of resources where you go, gosh, this, like, I, I'm not at that point for whatever reason, I'm not going to go see somebody, that's okay. I would recommend, I'm going to recommend three books that could be easy to obtain because you can buy them at any bookstore or online bookstore. And there are a lot of step-by-step -step exercises that you can practice that you might find to be very helpful. Uh, the first one is called Healing Trauma by Peter Levine. The second one is called Mind Body Stress Reset by Rebecca Ladine, L-A-D-Y-N-E. And the third book is called Call of the Wild by Kimberly Ann Johnson. Now that book is written more specifically towards women, women or um, those socialized as female. However, all of the principles apply to people regardless of your gender. What I love about those is they're very trauma-informed. All three of those books are very trauma-informed. These are coming from practitioners that are trauma-trained, that have a good understanding of how trauma lives in the body. And each one of those books has a lot of activities, meaning like interventions and tools that you can use in addition to the information that they're giving you about what is trauma in your body. So um, hopefully that can help with a couple different points of like where you might find yourself being able to grab onto some resources depending on where you're at. Yeah. How does That's that sound? Great. That's great. Thank you very much for, <laughs> for providing that, yeah. that last bit of uh, that less, last bit of insider knowledge for folks. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Laura, it's a delight talking to you again. Just mm. to remind everyone, the book is called when Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. Laura, where can people find you online? Yeah, like you said earlier, I'm pretty in I'm active on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Laura E. Anderson. That's Instagram, Facebook, 
TikTok. My website is drlaraeanderson.com. So you can find out everything about me, access my Substack, the podcast that I host, all those things. If you are interested in finding support through my company, it's the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. So on all platforms, we're Trauma Resolution and Recovery, and our website is traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. Thank you very much, Laura, for joining me today. Thank you.